Turn around and say hello to somebody, and please be seated. And today we got lots of phone calls and texts from people who are wanting to get on, in on the, the Bible project. We're purchasing Beams Bibles at $8 a piece, hardback Bibles, and seeing to it that uh, they get into the hands of third world Christians. And that's concluding technically today. The offering is in its ninth week. But if you still want to get in on it, had some people contact today. Some of you are viewing right now on live stream and you're bringing your money in for that. We appreciate it so much. Looking forward to all that can be done to get the Word of God into the hands of these new believers. So thank you so much. And may I thank each and every one for your participation over the last nine weeks. It's been a great, great project. Praise the Lord. All right. Uh, we are looking tonight in the Word of God, talking about one of my favorite subjects, heaven. Heaven is sounding sweeter. More and more of the people that I've known all my life have preceded me, gone there, and uh, some of you may go there. And I don't have a fixation on death. I don't have this morbid connection with death. But as a preacher, we have preached a lot of funerals over the years. Uh, in your bulletin, we have the account of W.A. Criswell's first funeral. He was just a teenager, and he said uh, in his country church he conducted his first funeral. I went to a poor tenant's home and watched a little baby die. After the service at the little country church, the family and friends put the little casket on a flatbed truck. Next to me in my car sat the mother, and beside her the father. As that truck pulled out, mother began to cry piteously, and the father put his arm around her and said, Sweet, don't cry. Our baby is in the arms of Jesus, and he will take care of him. He will keep our child safely, and someday, darling, he will give our baby back to us again. W.A. Criswell said, That was my first funeral. What a comfort we as believers have in the promise that someday we will be reunited with those whom we love in Christ. And that is true. One of the most wonderful truths about heaven is that we're not strangers in heaven. As we read in 1 Corinthians about agape love and about how important it is for us to allow the love of the Lord to flow through us, no matter how much ability, talent, or opportunity for service we have, without love we're nothing. We're not going to accomplish anything. But we're told in there, now we know in part, but then we won't know in part. Then we're going to know what we don't know now. Then we're going to see what we can't see and perceive now. And we will know as we are known when we get over on the other side. Say, preacher, what does that all mean? Well, I take it in the larger sense. I take it to mean that we're not strangers in heaven. When we're in heaven, we're family. And just like uh, we, we sense when we're in the presence of people that come from the same background or the, have the same, uh, you know, the same genetic makeup as we do, we sense that we're in the presence of somebody that's familiar. And that's happened to me on a number of occasions. But, uh, you know, it's going to be even more intense when we get on the other side. We're going to sense the family connection on the other side. We're going to know our loved ones on the other side. Dr. Criswell said, promises that someday we'll be reunited with those whom we love in Christ. That reunion is going to take place sooner than we know. Uh, 
And this hope is incomparably sweet and dear beyond words to describe, as Dr. Quiswell said. So praise the Lord. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I know those are words that rhyme, and we songwriters, we, we do the best we can to try to maintain the theological um, integrity of the song when we're rhyming all those <laughs> lyrics out, and sometimes it's a stretch. But I love to sing songs or hear songs sung about heaven. I remember hearing uh, the Kingsmen sing, Wish You Were Here. Whew. Now, I don't know how accurate all of the lyrics are in that song, but I know when I get done listening to that song, I mean, it's, I'm, on, I'm in a puddle. I'm in a puddle because it's so real to me. It, it means something to me. And while I don't advocate sentimentalism, if we can't get moved uh, by the concept of heaven and going there and being with the Lord and seeing loved ones, uh, then there's something definitely wrong with us. Our coldness could use some thawing. And our uh, precision uh, could, use, could be subject to some of the warmth of the Lord Jesus. We're not going to just spend our time in the New Testament. I want you to go with me to the Old Testament tonight. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the 73rd Psalm, the 73rd Psalm. And we're not going to read the first 22 verses. The psalmist here is not David, but rather Asaph. We're going to talk about some of the other people who were famous for writing by inspiration the Psalms. Now, the Psalms of the Old Testament are the songbook of the Old Testament covenant people of God, the Hebrews. Psalms mean songs. And they, of course, have a, a very, very important uh, part in the life of the Hebrew nation. Those people lived some difficult years in captivity, uh, both in Egypt and then later in, uh, in Babylon and Assyria. They experienced some difficulty. Uh, they had uh, invasions by the peoples around them, and because they had sinned grievously in forgetting God and taking on some of the idolatrous worship practices of their neighbors, the Lord allowed them to be chastised. So they had experienced uh, the, the hard lessons of chastisement. When we read about some of these things, we wonder, how could anybody be so dumb? But when I look in the Bible, I don't see it that way. I, I see, it's like a mirror. I see myself and my stupidity and my stubbornness and my slowness to get the lesson that I should have gotten before. All right, we're in Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And please follow as I read, beginning at verse 20 to 23. 23 of Psalm 73. It says, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Sounds like Isaiah. We have the song, For I, the Lord thy God, will do what? He'll hold our right hand. So this is the hand 
of favor. This is the hand of security. There are so many things we could say about that. We are kept and we are secure in the hand of the Lord. We don't have to worry about holding on to His hand. He holds us. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. That verse, verse 24 is our text verse, because it is a summation of what the Christian life is supposed to be. The Christian life is supposed to be a life of following the leadership of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, step by step, walking by faith, not by sight, being led of the Lord, yielding to His guidance, staying on the main track, staying where we're supposed to be, keep it between the lines, that sort of thing. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. We should be going to the Lord in every trial and trauma and difficulty of life, of which we have many. We're supposed to be in the Word. We're supposed to be guided by His counsel. And then afterward, to be received to glory. Our going to be with the Lord is in the timing of the Lord. It's not in our timing. We all have, I'm sure, somewhat of a, a concept of what it's going to be like when we pass. Now, my wife and I have talked about this. We have gotten a certain point in our life that, that, uh, that she says she didn't even imagine when we started out that she would ever be here. But we're still here, babe. We're still, <laughs> we're still moving forward. Still going on. The Lord is still counseling us, and He's going to receive us into glory. And uh, I don't know if it's comfort or not, but with your mom being 99 and my mom having gone to heaven at 103, I think we're going to be around a little longer. And so I don't know exactly when it's going to be that He'll receive us. But any of you who've been through uh, difficult uh, health issues or accidents, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Life is so fragile, and you can be taken immediately. I, I'm going to refer to some of the things that I know about the, uh, the fragility of life that we experience. But we're going to be received to glory, and with the believer, it, it's not incidental. It is by purpose and by design, and He receives us to glory. And if God does everything perfect, and we know that He does then He's got a perfect time for us if we live out our life, the full course that He has in mind. We might be going to heaven with a disease or, or by an accident, or we might be living to a ripe old age, and He takes us then, He takes us quickly. My mom always wanted to go like my dad did. My dad went to sleep. And my mom wanted to go that way, and she did too, but she had a little bit more of a struggle the last several weeks of her life. And she was all discombobulated, did not know who she was, and she was imagining people visiting her that had been dead for, for decades. But that's what she went through. Her experience was a little different than my dad. My dad was very astute. He was 89 and a half years of age, and he did his thing at church that day, went home, went to bed, woke up with Jesus. So everybody's being received is going to be a little different. It's going to be according to the will of God. Then it says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Stop for just a moment. Think about it. I want to see my mom, my dad, my grandparents. I've got so many stories that I could share. But uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them. But primarily, 
uh, when we get to heaven, the one we want to see is Jesus. We've, we've had songs that have been written and sung about that subject. I want to see my Savior first of all. Say, so, oh, but I really love my dad, I really love my mom, and I want to see them first. No, uh, all, of the, all of the personal sentiment is going to be set aside. We get to heaven, the first one we want to see is the one who paid the price for our being there. And uh, I, I'm just of the curious nature, I may not be then, but I would, like, I would like to see the prince that I put in his hands. I'd like to see... I'd like to see that gaping place in his side that I put there. Uh, it has been well said that the only thing in heaven made with men's hands are the, are the wounds in our Savior Jesus Christ. And I, I want to, not because, again, I, I have some kind of morbid curiosity, but I want to see what was paid in my behalf, what was done in my behalf. And then, although I love Him with all my heart, I don't show Him like I ought to, I'm, I'm trusting then without the old nature, without the flesh weighing me down, I can show Him. I can express in some way my gratitude. We can never repay Him, but the one we want to see first is Jesus. In John 14, He said, You believe in God, believe also in Me. What makes heaven what it is is not just the Walls of jasper, the streets of gold, the gates of pearl. All those magnificent mansions that we read about. But what makes heaven so special is the presence of the one who paid the price of our sin debt. That's what makes heaven so wonderful. And I'm going to focus on that until God takes me home. But I, who do I have in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. When it's all said and done, He's our reason for going to heaven. My flesh and my heart faileth. And how many times have we absolutely blown our opportunities down here? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What that means is, even though I continue to make mistakes as a flawed human being, my reason for living on and then for being in heaven is the Lord Himself. He's the one that enables me to start over fresh tomorrow. He's the one that gives me the opportunities, the new opportunities, uh, the new blessings, all those things every single day. It's our relationship with the Lord. He didn't just save us. We don't just know Him as Savior, but like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that I may know Him. In other words, better and better, more and more. I want to learn more and more about Jesus. I want to be closer and closer to Him. I want a closer walk, as the song goes. So there it is. My heart, my flesh, they fail. They fail. I'm weak. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm glad He's in my life. I'm glad I can say to you tonight that wherever I have fallen short this week, this month, this year, this decade, the Lord is there to pick me up again and uh, to help me to get going again so that I can serve Him and do something for His glory, lead some poor soul to Christ before it's too late. For lo, they that are far off from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. And the psalmist understands 
The fact that there are many, many false professors, there are many false prophets, there are many deceivers. As Peter says, in the last days, we have a lot of folks. If you start counting up, taking a poll of all those who profess to have met the Lord or know the Lord or are somehow religiously connected, they are vast in number. But the life, and mine is far from what it ought to be, but the life just doesn't seem to, to uh, add up. You know people like I'm talking about right now. They can give you a good profession, but they don't demonstrate the possession of the Lord in their life. Now please notice what Asaph says in verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. We're going to take notes in a moment how this applies. It's good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Let's pray. Father, fill me now with the Holy Spirit. Help me, Lord, as I bring this message tonight in a way that will be helpful and beneficial to each of us as we attempt to live for you. Though we're flawed and though we stumble, though our heart and our flesh seem to constantly fail us, Lord, we thank you that you give us a fresh start. And I pray that we might again uh, begin anew and afresh for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Psalm 73. The Psalms, as you know, are divided into sections. And I want you to look at me. Like one hand, one, two, three, four, five. There are five sections in the Psalms. So the book of Psalms, which is the songbook of the Hebrews, and it is our, also our songbook as well, inspired, every word is inspired and preserved, divided into five different books. And these are of different lengths. But each one of these five roughly corresponds to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, known as the Law as well. So we, we have the first section of Psalms is called the Genesis section of Psalms. The second section is called the Exodus section of Psalms. And each one of these, uh, throughout that section of Psalms, there is a key thought that parallels Genesis and Exodus. Now this is the beginning of the third book, or the third section of the Psalms, beginning at Psalm 73, and this would be um, corresponding to Leviticus. And you understand what Leviticus is about. Leviticus is about the priesthood. It's about the sacrifices, the feasts. It's about the symbolism of the Old Testament. When we read in the New Testament about Hebrews, we, we learn that Jesus Christ is better than those symbols, better than the tabernacle, better than Moses, better than uh, all those uh, symbols and types represented in the book of Leviticus that point ahead to Him. He is the fulfillment of all those types. So Jesus Christ really is related to the Psalms. We see, as Jesus said, when He was opening up the Scriptures to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, He was showing them, uh, so much so that their hearts burned within them, how that Moses and the writers of the Old Testament were really speaking of Him. Jesus Christ is represented in this. In 
This third book of the division of Psalms, there are 17 Psalms. Eleven of these were written by this same individual, Asaph. And then we had some written by Heman, Ethan, uh, David, the sons of Korah. And we understand these are different writers, but one God, one Holy Spirit, who brings it all together. The connection between the, the various Psalms of this third book, the 17 Psalms that are here, the connection is the God connection. The connection is the Holy Spirit. Asaph was the son of Berechiah, who was a Levite, and he was set over the service, the ministry of music by David himself. We read about this back in 1 Chronicles. Will you turn with me there, please? 1 Chronicles chapter 6. 1 Chronicles chapter 6. First Chronicles chapter 6 and look at verse 31. And these are they whom David set over the service of song in the house of the Lord after that the ark had rest. So we have the listing of the names and so forth. And um, down in verse 39, look there. And his brother Asaph who stood on his right hand, even Asaph the son of Berechiah, the son of Shimea. So we have the family connection of these musicians who were divinely appointed uh, to be part of the ministry, and David is the one who provides for them. Our David is none other than our Savior Jesus Christ. He is typified by their David, but he will, of course, sit upon the throne of David. He has the right to do that because he was born of a virgin, sinless, and he became the sinless Lamb of God, the Savior who died on the cross, shed His blood voluntarily for us, and then rose from the dead. So he's, he's, he's all set. He is the only one qualified by his lineage and by his life and, and uh, what he did for us to, to sit upon the throne of David. We see him typified here. We see how important this is. These Levites played musical instruments, and Asaph became the chief, the head musician. This is not something that is to be dealt with lightly. When we first came to Central Baptist from our previous ministry, um, I think it was a matter of curiosity or interest that uh, we, we did music, and, uh, and Tony Massimelli at one point said, if you walk out with one more instrument, I don't know what he threatened to do, but he was going to, I'm glad he didn't do it because I did walk out with one more instrument. But uh, the, the musical ministry is a wonderful, necessary part of our worship and our expression of, uh, of love for the Lord and worship and extolling of the Lord and His attributes. It's very important. We understand that. And I, I'm glad that, that I've got a little background in music. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, where we were this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. There are a couple of special passages about this. Ephesians 5 
And after we read in verse 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. After we read about the fullness, the command to be filled with the Spirit, then it says in verse 19, here it is, speaking to yourselves in psalms, that's what we've just, we've just been in Psalm 73, and hymns and spiritual songs. Three different designations. They're all musical, but they are different in nature. We have psalms, we have hymns, and we have spiritual songs. And notice where the singing takes place. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The highest form of musical expression of worship are songs that are sung to the Lord directly. So during the day, I don't know how, how adept you are at singing, what your music uh, talent may be, but the Lord doesn't care if you're on key, if you're doing your best. If it's from your heart, that's all He cares about. And the highest form of our worship is to sing to Him. Uh, Lord, how I love you. Lord, how I extol you. Lord, how I lift you up. That's the highest form of musical praise and worship. The, the second highest is to worship Him by reporting about His attributes, how great He is, how loving He is, how wonderful He is. And third, and perhaps the least of the forms of worship is, you know, how He makes me feel. I feel good. I feel satisfied. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But the first is to sing to Him or to make music to Him. The, the second is to make music or song about Him and His greatness. And, and then there is what that all does to impact us. It is personal, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't condemn that. Of all the songs that I have, uh, hundreds of songs I've written and courses, most of them would fall into the first two categories, and some into the third category. Turn also over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. After we're told to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. Now the, the rule word here is uh, an umpire. Uh, let the peace of God be the, the arbiter, the umpire in your heart. And... Uh, to the which ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, that's the construction again, 50 times in the New Testament for the believers, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, there it is, and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus by His authority, giving thanks to God, and the Father by Him. I'm convicted tonight as I'm reading this again for the umpteenth time that we're not thankful enough. We're not grateful enough. One of the key characteristics of this perilous generation which we read about in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and also in Romans chapter 1 is the ungratefulness, the unthankfulness of this generation and I plead guilty on that account. So there is a great need in the ministry of music, and it should be done to the glory of God. It should be done the very best that we can do it. I thank God for our music uh, ministry here, for our people. God bless you. I appreciate that. But it's 
it's always to be in proper balance that we're praising the Lord. We're singing to the Lord and about the Lord and about what the Lord has done for us. Praise God for that. In Psalm 73, Asaph is speaking about a problem. Why do wicked people seem to get ahead in the world and believers don't? Well, the key word there is seem. It's what seems to be. You and I don't know what's going on. Uh, the rich people, I mean, I'm talking about the really, really mega rich people that I've known. I've known a few of, a few of them in my life. They're generally not happy with their riches. They really aren't. And it becomes almost like an albatross to many of them. They're just not, they're not happy with their riches. They may be compelled to, to, to continue to, to earn and to make more and make more and make more and accumulate more and accumulate more. But generally speaking, we need to remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy when he said that we should be content with what we have. If we've got uh, food, clothes, you know, we've got a roof over our head, we should be content. We know how to be, uh, you know, how to be increased. We know how to be diminished. But we, we should be content. And contentment is the key. And there are some people that are very, 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 very well-to-do in terms of the amount of money that they have, and they're not content with it. They're not satisfied. Maybe it's that they feel some kind of guilt or they're just, they're not content. They haven't realized their place and their purpose. And God does allow some people to make a lot of money. And they've been permitted so that they can do that for the glory of God. And then there are some that God doesn't trust with a lot of money and we're to be content with what we have and be satisfied because He's promised to supply all of our need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We technically do not have to pray or remind the Lord to supply our needs, although in the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But uh, that may have more meanings than just, Lord, remember me, you know, don't let me go hungry. There may be more to it than just that. We are very thankful for everything that we have, everything that we experience, everything that we enjoy in life. But Asaph is having a problem wrapping his brain around the fact that wicked men seem to be getting rich. And they don't seem to have trouble. But they probably do. And some of them even talk against God. And common people see these wicked men getting rich and they begin to wonder about them too. And Asaph gets to the point that he, he questions whether or not living a godly life has actually benefited him. So he's being very transparent. He's telling how he feels. The answer is obvious that we as believers are going to get and enjoy all that we have coming to us in the life to come. In the meantime, we have the assurance that we're in God's hands and whatever happens, whether we live or die, we gain, we, we win. According to the Apostle Paul, First, uh, he, he talks about it several places, but he talks about it in Philippians chapter 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The judgment of the wicked is still in the future, and then the books are going to be 
balanced as such. And so, as we think about life and death and what people have and what they accumulate, we need to keep in mind that we're only looking at a fallen creation through fallen eyes. So how we perceive and how we judge things is skewed. It's not correct. It's not accurate. How should I look at this, Lord? That's what we should be doing. That's what Asaph needs to do. That's what I need to do. Lord, I'm seeing such and so. It doesn't seem right. So obviously, you do everything right. Everything is balanced. Help me to see how it actually is. And God who is in heaven is going to give us contentment and peace and satisfaction, all kinds of things that you can't buy with billions and billions of dollars. I'm not going to judge Bill Gates or any of the others who are just absolutely filthy rich. But I'll guarantee you, I've got a satisfaction that Bill Gates doesn't have because he doesn't know Jesus like I know Jesus. My joy is in knowing Jesus. My satisfaction is in knowing that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. All of our problems and challenges and difficulties and quandaries and things that we're having difficulty with trying to piece together. Why, why is this happening to me, Lord? We need to come and lay them at Jesus' feet and say, Lord, just give me a sense of knowing that you've got it all under control, that security, that assurance. And I don't have to know all the details. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Asaph got to the point where he said, what's the bother? What's the use of living godly? I was with a missionary one time, and this missionary had been falsely accused of some moral indiscretions. He was not guilty. He had witnesses. He had proof. But others were speaking ill of him back in the States. And I said, brother, I'm going to pray for you. And he said something to me. He says, it makes me wonder, same, same as Asaph, makes me wonder why I'm even living the way I am if people are going to talk nasty about me when I'm not guilty. I'm, I'm so sad to have to say that some years later, we learned that he had actually then from that point gone and just thrown in the towel and begun to live a sinful life. And that's so sad. That's so sad. I brought that same subject up to three of my mentors. I was sitting in a, uh, a national bus conference, and uh, Dr. Beebe and Dr. Malone, Dr. Hiles were there at the table. You know, I just kind of kept my mouth shut, but they, they asked me what was going on with me, what was on my mind, and I related about this missionary. And there was this, this eerie silence from three men that I consider to be giants of the faith. And they really didn't have anything to say about it except just to shake their head and say, how sad, how sad. God gives us the wherewithal not to succumb to those kinds of doubts. We don't have to throw in the towel and start living in the flesh just because there are times when it seems like it's not worth it. That seeming is the problem. And that seeming is where we're going to mess up and we're going to stumble. I spoke a few moments ago about some musical uh, things that we do. 
But if, if I really have any expertise, I've got to say by experience, my expertise is in the area of funerals. And I've not written a book or done anything special on this, but I've made reference to it before. When we were in our previous ministry, there were five funeral homes. And one of the funeral directors initiated this. He said, you know, we have so many people here in California that are not church connected. That when there is a funeral to be done, I need somebody that I can call on any time. And on short notice, can do the funeral without a lot of preparation, without a, a, a lot of muster fuss. And it's not that I didn't put myself into it, but he asked me if I would be the go-to guy. And so I said yes. So over the course of 16 years, I did a couple of thousand funerals for people that I never met in this life. And I've got stories about funerals. I've, I've told you the story about the atheist lady. She died, and her ashes were in an urn. And I was sent on a Sunday afternoon out in the middle of nowhere. They had all kinds of these little cemeteries tucked throughout the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And uh, sometimes the, the uh, cemeteries, the cemeteries were elevated. In other words, they were like on hillsides. So they kind of had to bury people sideways. I mean, it was, it was not exactly geometrically perfect. I was standing over the graveside of this atheist woman and her ashes there right next to me. And down below me, about 15 feet in elevation, was a crowd of about 60 people. Included among them was her son. And I began to preach. And as I always have used the opportunity to, to give the gospel, we have lots of professions. God knows who really truly gets saved. I, I, I haven't tried to number these, but certainly on average there were always, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12, if not more, in some cases quite a few more, that professed Christ at the end when the invitation was given. But I'm preaching the message, and, and I said, if this dear lady could speak to you now, she would say, listen to the preacher, and there is a heaven to gain and a hell to, to miss if you'll receive Christ as your Savior. Well, this son, who also was an unbeliever, was so livid about that, but he was, he was about halfway, uh, you know, two sheets to the winds, that sort of thing. He was, he was just about gone. He started stumbling up the hill, and he was cussing all the way and swinging all the way. Now, I'm very glad that in my lifetime there was enough athleticism that I learned how to duck a punch, and, and, and I just had to keep myself from counterpunching. But I'm standing there, and I'm preaching, and he comes right by me, and he swings a roundhouse, and I ducked, he missed, he fell, stumbled, kept walking up the hill. I never missed a beat. I kept on preaching, gave the plan of salvation. Many hands raised, about 40 out of the 60, saying that they prayed to receive Christ as Savior. There are many, many circumstances like that, many unusual funerals that God allowed me to conduct. And I became somewhat familiar with the whole process, so much so that at times, people would ask me different questions. And they would ask me about heaven. And I would say, I don't know everything about heaven, but I know Jesus is what is going to make heaven so wonderful. Do you know Jesus? And I would constantly present Jesus Christ. Over the course 
of those 16 years and, and of course all the five decades of ministry, we've had thousands of funerals and many, many thousands of decisions for Christ. As we've talked about this wonderful place, heaven, how to, how to make it to heaven by the grace of God, how to miss hell. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Afterward means my eternal home. Afterward means I'm going to heaven. Afterward means, well, whatever you want to call heaven, Beulah land or home or whatever. My mom in her last days wanted to know all the details about heaven. I said, Mom, I don't know anything other than what I've shared with you already. I know that's where Jesus is. And that's all we need to know. She had studied out uh, all kinds of different resources with respect to heaven. And the terms I started using as she was losing it more and more is the title of the message tonight that we're just going to tack on now. Nearing the shore. Nearing the shore. And I found a story that intrigued me. Years ago, a load of sheep was shipped from Scotland to Australia. Just before the ship reached Australia, the sheep refused to eat their dry grain and hay. Here's the, the ship anchored in the harbor, got the sheep on board, all of a sudden they stopped eating. At the same time, a dense fog covered the waters and for two days, the ship was there in the harbor. But the sheep had no interest in their food. Then the fog lifted. And as they pulled into harbor, they saw the green fields of Australia. And these sheep had been sensing that. They'd been smelling the nearby land and the greenery. And it had caused them, here it is, to lose all appetite for their dry food on board the ship. You and I may be on board. We may be heading in the direction of that heavenly harbor. And we're just, you know, we're doing what we have to do between now and getting there. But there's going to come a time when we're going to lose all taste for everything of this earth. The things that people are addicted to aren't going to be important anymore. The places, the people, the activities aren't going to be important anymore. Because like those sheep, we're going to sense what's on shore. When we get to heaven, what's there is so much better. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I'm near the shore than I was yesterday. It was Alfred Lord Tennyson who wrote Twilight and Evening Bell. And after that, the dark. And may there be no sadness of farewell when I embark. For though from out our born of time and place, the flood may bear me far, I know I'll see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. Nearing the shore. It's going to be great. Beyond my descriptive powers tonight, 
It's going to be great. Don't, don't do anything but just tie up the loose ends and serve the Lord faithfully. And as it says, be guided with God's counsel, but then look forward to being received to glory. Let's bow our heads and bow our, bow our heads and close our eyes. Bow our heads and close our eyes tonight as we consider heaven. How many of you tonight would say, Preacher, what you've said has touched my heart, spoken to me. Slip your hand up high. Spoke to me. Amen. Amen. We're going. If you know Jesus, we're going. How many of you would say, I'm looking forward to it. I've received Christ as my Savior, and I know I'm going to heaven. Slip your hand up. Amen. Amen. Every hand in the place. You know, of course, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just pray from your heart. If you're not sure, ask Jesus Christ to come in and save you. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you about. Maybe there's somebody that's near and dear to you that's not ready for heaven. They haven't made the preparation, and you like to pray about that. Maybe there's some other decision you'd like to make. We open up the invitation now to anyone and everyone. Would you stand to your feet, and we're going to sing together. Number 153, I Surrender All. Oh. 